We wanted to take a moment to address the recent news of Dr. Della Hook's brain aneurysm. We are very saddened. This is devastating news, not only for her family, but for the entire community. And we did struggle with whether or not to proceed with covering this book, but ultimately we felt like this was the best way for us to honor her at this time. And we love her work so much and are really excited to bring it to you. So we send Dr. Della Hook lots of loving thoughts and prayers and are really hoping for a very speedy recovery for her. We hope you enjoy the book. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Della Hook. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. We are so excited to start a new book today. We're going to be discussing Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. We are loving what we've read so far. But before we get into that, we have a couple of questions for each other. So grab your coffee and come hang out with us as we chat and learn some new things about us. Okay, so we're playing the game Show Me You Know Me. Adrian, if you have a good one, go ahead and start. Okay, I do have a good one. <laughs> when I go to a restaurant and I'm presented with a big menu, and you know the kinds of restaurants, normally corporate, you know. I know. I, I generally, I'm thinking specifically of like the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> I was like, does it have ads in it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, I generally, A, go in knowing exactly what I want and decide quickly. B, Spend a few minutes looking, but nothing excessive. C, study the menu like I'm going to be quizzed later. D, can never decide. I always ask others for their opinion. And I would like to add option E, if I may, which is the night before, go onto the website, look at the menu, and in the comfort of your own home, without any of the pressure, Make your decision beforehand. Well, since you gave me the option, I'm going to go with E. <laughs> but okay, I have, I'm thinking back to a time where we went to Kasha together in Pasadena and we went to, what's that place called? Yard House. Yard House. Yard House. Okay, we went to Yard House. And they Trust have a... me, I used to work there. <laughs> I would know. See, that's the thing. <laughs> I feel like we sat down and you didn't even look. Like you were like, I already know what I'm getting. Right? I mean, yeah, I, I worked there, so I know that menu front and back. Did that make you feel panicked? <laughs> <laughs> no, because I think there's an ahi salad that I almost always get. Oh, yeah. Right? Like a seared Classic. ahi salad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would say for some reason, either you have chosen beforehand or you decide quickly. I think you're a quick decider. Um. I would love for that to be the case, but I'm not. Like, I really spend a lot of time. I think sometimes I go in, I'm like, okay, do I want a salad? Do I, maybe this is kind of the place I love a soup. Does this place have soup? Maybe that could sway me. But then I'm like, oh, but what's going on over here? But what, maybe I want an appetizer in a soup, you know, it gets out of control. And then the waiter comes, you know, the server. And I'm like, uh, I'm always at one, like, can we just have five more minutes? And then he comes back and I'm like, let me go last, you know, panicking. <laughs> It's a panicked situation. 
<laughs> okay, okay. I did not know that about you. Yeah, I mean, the yard house experience where we were together, that was not, that was not typical. So. We were also on like a lunch break. Yeah. We had a session that we wanted to attend on R, teaching mm-hmm. R. And I remember exactly what we went to afterwards. My memory of that Kasha, it's like strong. Oh, I remember that too. <laughs> so I feel like we had to sit down, order, yeah. get it done. Yeah. So yeah. we went quick. But I'm thinking about yeah. that too. You know, those restaurants you go to where like any time of day you could get breakfast, you could get a sandwich, you could get a salad. Oh, yeah. Maybe even some Mexican food on there, you know, like where you just don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> That complicates things. <laughs> I'm thinking of Woody's. You know Woody's in Orange County? My sister used to work the diner? there. And yeah, the diner. Woody's diner. Oh, yeah. Okay, so it's just diner. A diner menu is too overwhelming right. for me. I get so, and I go, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to get a salad. And then, yeah, like the waiter will be taking our order and I'll be like, oh, just give me a burger. <laughs> so yeah, I go back and forth. I don't like having too many options. I love a right. menu that is just like one page right they just give you like a cardstock page it's just the front you look at the back you're like oh this is it it's so easy to choose yeah you just know that they've narrowed things down to only the best options or you assume you think everything will (laughs) be good sometimes it works out that way sometimes not (laughs) yeah yeah okay i'm ready oh okay (laughs) when playing family board games i am known to just have a good time and not worry about who wins. Cheat or do whatever it takes to win. Take losing way too seriously or sit it out. Board games are boring. Okay, I'm going to make a guess here. My guess for you is C. I feel like you are competitive. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> but not a cheater nope. and not a sit outer. Nope. I'm not a cheater, but I will accuse others of cheating. <laughs> If I lose, someone's going down. Oh, man. That's hilarious. <laughs> what about you? Are you competitive? Um, I'm not really competitive when it comes to board games. I'm probably more of an A. I mean, that cheating, I would never in my life cheat. Yeah. But I have a confession. Uh-oh. <laughs> As those words came out of my mouth, I was like, that's not true. What happens? Sometimes my fingers might get a little slippery when I play Scrabble. You know, you're drawing from the bag, you get like X, V, Q. Okay. And you're just like, ah. and maybe the other person's not looking. I just like drop the X <gasps> back in. Adrian. <laughs> but, if I'm playing with my sister. But you know, you can just put X next to any I and that's a word. <laughs> but you might not have an I. You might have all consonants. Like, <laughs> Oh my goodness. I can't believe it. I know that as a kid, I cheated if I was the banker in Monopoly. But that's like a clap. Everybody did that. You just can't resist that money. I didn't do that. (laughs) Everyone did that, Adrian. Everyone. (laughs) Everybody must have done it. (laughs) I'm talking about when you're like seven. No. (laughs) My morals have clearly slipped as I've gotten older. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I would never, ever, ever cheat now ever not even scrabble no no not even putting that cue back a little no 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 (laughs) um my fiance is so competitive too that we can't really play games Uh, you know mm -hmm. it's it's that bad oh (laughs) you know i find i have many competitive people in my life and it works well since i'm just like 
whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think if you grow up with a lot of siblings, it can go either way. Like I'm thinking about you, right? You have three siblings. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. maybe when you were growing up, you were competing with them. Oh, yeah. Always wanting to win. Yeah. But for me, having two sisters, plus being the oldest, I can remember feeling like really bummed when I wouldn't win. Yeah. And I think I was just like, this is a horrible feeling. I'm just not going to care anymore. (laughs) Yeah, that's nice to make a choice like that. (laughs) I'm going to give a fun recommendation for a game to play with a family. This was my family's like favorite game when we all got together around the holidays, stuff like that. It's a game called Encore where you're given a word and you have to think of a song that has the word in it and then you have to sing it. You have to sing at least like 10 words of it to get the point. If you can't do it, the other team gets to try. It is so much fun. fun. Like it is the best game. We recently, I got a new copy of it and we played it. I was thinking about it for days, like how much fun I had with like my niece and like people (laughs) who never played. (laughs) No, we can, maybe we we should should play play it on the podcast and get, (laughs) Oh, you can show us those acapella skills. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I have a, like a little segue off that. Okay. You've seen Pitch Perfect, right? Of course. Love that movie. But you know when they're having the the sing-off or whatever it is, like the battle? Yeah. I'm always like, do you think anybody could do that actually? Where they're just like songs about and then you're just like no. coming out and then everybody, all the harmonies. It's like, I wish that was real life, but I could never, my mind would just go blank. Yeah, you can't do it. You know what was unfair? <laughs> so I'm going to accuse someone of cheating right now when I played Encore. My niece had recently gotten really into Hamilton. This was a few years ago. Okay. So she was just busting out any word that came up. There was like a Hamilton song to sing. And I was like, I don't think this counts. Like, (laughs) (laughs) That's your competitive nature. You're like, doesn't matter if you're eight. (laughs) I think like five times a Hamilton song was used. And I was like, no, 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 no. What's the rule? That's the same song you already sang. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, goodness. I am way too competitive. I got to loosen up a little bit. But you know what? As an SLP, you do have to accept defeat I can't always win Uh, yeah sometimes I was mean to my students and would beat them sometimes I would I would win too because I'm like listen this is a lesson we all love a cooperative board game right yeah I think it's good for kids to work together to win but sometimes this is called sportsmanship right we got to be a good loser (laughs) just is what it is yeah All right, you guys. Well, here we are giving you the hard lessons of life. You know, everybody needs to learn to be a good loser. (laughs) Us SLPs, you know, we're here to teach them. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you laughed a little bit. And stay tuned as we talk about the intro and chapter one of Beyond Behaviors. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers Groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. 
So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan, and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her Lidcomb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We are so excited to get started discussing Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. I don't know about you, Adrian, but from what I've read so far, it's really giving me a lot to think about and helping me to look at behavior in a really new way. Yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like chapter one, you know, we're barely scratching the surface, but it is tantalizing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, she's kind of like dropping hints about what we're going to learn. And I... Yeah feel like as we're all rolling into the school year, we always have kids on our caseloads that can benefit from us being up to date with all the information about behavior and how to treat behavior and how to be really effective part of the special ed team when it comes to kids who need this kind of support. So I just cannot wait. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We never want to overstep. You know, there's often a behaviorist on a team if you're dealing with a kid who has a lot of disruptive behaviors, but we often do end up working a lot on behavior because just to get kids to participate in our speech therapy sessions, we have to be effective at helping them. So in the introduction, Dr. Delahook starts by describing the different circumstances that children might have going on at home that could be leading to what we see as behaviors. So, you know, in her career, she says she's talked to teachers, professionals, and parents who are just looking for ways to help these kids when traditional behavioral strategies fail them. And over time, she's really come to this new understanding of how to manage challenging behaviors. And it's really different from what she learned when she was in grad school. So she asks, why are we failing to help children who need it the most, who have the most seriously challenging behaviors? And she says, most books about behavior take a one-size-fits-all approach. They fail to take into account individual differences. They fail to consider the brain and body connection and fail to examine behavior in the context of a child's social and emotional development. And they also often lack cohesive rationale or guiding principles. So her work has led her to Dr. Stephen Porges, and he's a neuroscientist who proposed the polyvagal theory and the concept of neuroception. We're going to get into those more later, but 
She says research and knowledge about the brain has come a really long way, but we still don't really know how to use it or apply it clinically. And Dr. Porges offers us the best way to understand and support behaviorally challenged children using this neuroscience. In her experience, Dr. Delahook says when children have challenging behaviors, the people who work with them come up with behavior plans and reinforcement contingencies. But before any of that should be put in place, we really have to ask if the child's brain and body are experiencing safety, and if not, how we can make that happen. So she describes the three sources that have contributed the most to her work. Dr. Porges, he's taught her that safety is the foundation upon which children build social emotional skills. You know, his polyvagal theory has contributed a lot to her work and the idea of neuroception, which is the process by which our nervous system evaluates risk without requiring any awareness. And then the second person who has contributed to her work most is her mentor, Dr. Serena Weeder, who is a pioneer of child development and symbolic play. She developed DIR with Dr. Stanley Greenspan. So we're not talking about a chump here. We're talking about like a heavy hitter. Yeah, totally. The third source that has contributed most to her work is the recognition of the importance of how we take in information through our sensory systems. And she says there's an overall failure to appreciate the significance of our sensory systems in mental health, medicine, and education but they form basic substrates underlying all human behaviors. So it's really important. Yeah. So briefly, let's get into what traditional treatment for behavior looks like. Usually we ascribe meaning to that behavior. So a lot of times we'll hear people say, this is attention seeking, or this is noncompliance or manipulation or avoidance. We're seeing behaviors as a child's way of getting something or getting out of something. But challenging behaviors are rarely caused by intentional defiance, avoidance, or manipulation. So reinforcement or negative consequences that are used to reduce these problematic behaviors and increase compliance aren't really going to work because usually these behaviors are resistant to things like that. They're not really under the child's volitional control. We also sometimes blame parenting or poor behavior management or maybe not even having the right medication for why a child isn't behaving. So in this book, we're going to learn a developmental and relationship-based approach. You know, we're going to talk about how many persistent and concerning behaviors are manifestations of physiological stress responses that occur when a child experiences a neuroception of threat. And we're going to look at behaviors as adaptive responses, not purposeful behavior. So in part one, we're going to talk about the problem and issues to be aware of. And then in part two, she's going to describe what we do with the knowledge that we have now and how to apply it. And then part three is going to focus on particular populations. So we're going to talk about autism and neurodiversity, toxic stress, trauma. And then there are just a few notes. She says she did her best to simplify the neuroscience and make it really accessible, which we appreciate. (laughs) Yeah. Then let's just get into chapter one. Chapter one is called Revealing the Hidden Adaptive Benefits of Behaviors. Dr. Delahook starts by describing Stuart, a second grade boy who's diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. Mm. He came from a loving home and could discern right from wrong and would have stretches of good behavior, but then would explode at a peer or sibling or an adult. And many techniques were tried by many professionals, but he ends up making little progress. 
we're going to come back to Stuart. Yeah, we circled back around. (laughs) But she says in her experience, often lots of professionals do try these things. They always prove ineffective. And she sees three common mistakes that are made in treating and managing behaviors. So let's get into them. The first common mistake is that we don't pinpoint the behavior's etiology before we try to treat it. So we all mistakenly believe that children have volitional control over their actions and behaviors. And I feel like we hear this a lot. People go, he can do it. He just won't. Right. Like, I know he can do it because I've seen him do it. And it's like, well, that was a different situation. Yeah, this was a little bit of a game changer for me, especially thinking about development and where the child is developmentally. Like some kids really don't have the ability to inhibit, you know, the way we think they should. And she had some good nuggets about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So she tells a story of Timmy who was in foster care and had been diagnosed with multiple psychiatric disorders by age four. And this child was not capable of changing his behavior to earn a reward. So when you offer rewards and consequences, it did little to change his behavior. And we all assume that they can deliberately make a choice, which shows that we have this predominant cultural bias that values punishment when children exhibit disruptive behaviors. Many behaviors actually represent the body's response to stress, but when we don't recognize this, we end up putting a lot of effort into techniques that just won't be effective. So we're trying to get children to connect their thoughts, emotions, and behaviors when they just can't yet. She keeps saying yet, so it's like, okay, we have to look at where they're at. Right now, they can't later they'll build these skills hopefully so for me this really brought to mind the upstairs brain and the downstairs brain from the whole brain child which i have to say she did reference in this chapter i was like oh i I know she brings up the whole brain child at the end and you know tina Payne bryson is one of the people that reviewed this book on the cover so we know that they have a little bit of a relationship but You know, when that downstairs brain takes over, there really can't be a connection to the logical thinking upstairs brain after you've flipped your lid. (laughs) So it looks like we're going to learn more about this in chapter two when she talks about top down versus bottom up behaviors. And she says, sometimes we aim too high when we think children's behavior is intentional and we aim too low when we think a child doesn't have abilities that he actually does have. And then I liked this quote. When we see a behavior that is problematic or confusing, the first question we should ask isn't how do we get rid of it, but rather what is this telling us about the child? Yeah. Our second common mistake that's made is that we use a one-size-fits-all approach instead of tailoring the treatment to the individual child. So in this case, she tells the story of Anna, a fifth grade girl who had really bad anxiety and bit her nails and struggled to get through the school day and picked at her skin. And when her teacher saw her picking her skin, she would have her take a sensory break where she walked around the room to calm herself. And this had worked for previous students that the teacher had had, but it didn't work for Anna because she was self-conscious. She felt singled out. She was embarrassed. She was confused. She felt like she was being blamed for this behavior that she really didn't have control over. And the treatment didn't work for her because it didn't consider how she would feel about it. It didn't address the reasons for her emotional distress. If you're picking your skin, (laughs) there's something below the surface. Right. And it didn't take into account her individual differences. So if a program isn't tailored to the unique needs of a child, 
it will probably fail, but it may work for some children. So that's why we go, oh, well, this, you know, we think it's something successful because it worked with one kid, but not with this kid. So individual differences are anything that affects how a person perceives the world through his or her body and mind. This includes everything we feel consciously or subconsciously, our bodily sensations, thoughts, feelings. These differences impact relationships, social, emotional development, and behavior. And caregivers need to understand each child's individual differences, including underlying needs, preferences, and inborn traits. So she compares this to precision medicine, where diseases are treated, taking into account individual variability in genes, environment, and lifestyle for each person. And we can use this principle instead of the one-size-fits-all approach. She said a large study recently found that 63% of parents feel skeptical of people who give parenting advice and recommendations if they don't know my child and my situation specifically, which... Yeah. Obviously. (laughs) Good for you. Do we need a study to tell us that? Well, it's still good to know. (laughs) 63%. Uh, Yeah. What are those other 30? They're like, yeah, whatever. I'll take the advice. (laughs) So we need to customize the way we communicate with children so that it is effective for their mind and body and how they process information through their bodies, emotional systems, senses, and thoughts. Yeah. And in chapter three, we're going to learn more about how to go beyond this one-size-fits-all approach. So the third common mistake that's made is that we don't use a developmental roadmap to understand the optimal times for each approach. In this case, she tells the story of Liam. He's a twice-exceptional student. If you don't know what twice-exceptional means, do you guys talk about that in your districts? Um, It comes up sometimes, but... Not often. Okay. So it's just, it means that you have exceptional abilities in one or more areas while also having a disability or challenge. So you could be really gifted in math, but also be diagnosed with dyslexia or ADHD or, you know. Sure, sure. So this child was really strong intellectually, but had difficulty with emotional regulation and expressive language and had frequent meltdowns. Mm. And he was transferred to a charter school that they hoped would help. And the new school was really supportive and ordered him this personalized calm down book. But it didn't work because the book required top down processing to stop bottom up behavioral and emotional reactions. This child did not have the developmental capacity to use the book yet. So a developmental roadmap helps us determine bottom-up versus top-down behaviors, and we need to find where behaviors fit in the larger developmental picture so that we can help children express their needs and communicate distress, which will prevent behavioral challenges. Hmm. You can't expect a child to self-regulate their emotions and behaviors before they have the ability to do so. Now, this study I did find interesting. The Zero to Three organization did a study and 56% of parents think their children have impulse control to resist doing something forbidden before age three. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, what two and a half year old are you looking at? Are you defying me? (laughs) (laughs) They're so curious. They just want to get into stuff. I know. I know. That's our jobs as adults parents yeah yeah we're their frontal lobes right until they're whatever age 36 (laughs) percent of those parents believe they have the ability under the age of two when in reality children don't develop these abilities until age three and a half or four at the earliest and like i'm picturing my sister's twins (laughs) are two and a half 
And my sister just had to replace a whole toilet because one of them flushed a rubber duck down it. Oh, no. And (laughs) sent a video of her covered. She looked like the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. Covered head to foot in my sister's highlighter for contouring. (laughs) She got it out and just like her whole face, her, her arms, her whole body was covered in this shimmery makeup. You know, they cannot. They are so, (laughs) they can't resist. No, they can't. It's just not in place. (laughs) So what we have here is an expectation gap. Parents assuming kids can do things that they just can't do. Right. And as the brain develops and children are actively engaged with their caregivers, they do develop top-down thinking so that they can control behaviors. Right. But just not maybe as early as some parents want them to, expect them to, think they should, you know. Right. So in chapter two, we're going to look at social emotional development and how we can use it as a roadmap to help us determine if a child is using that top down or bottom up processing. This will help guide decisions about what to say and do when a child's engaged in disruptive behavior. So you can teach children about how to behave when they're neurodevelopmentally ready to be taught, but the foundation for helping children is built through the experience of love, safety, and connection in relationships. And they need emotional co-regulation before they can successfully self-regulate. This one's making me think of Lisa Murphy. Like we're just, when we think about the foundation, when you're just trying to logically teach kids how to behave and they're not ready for that, they don't have the foundation yet to do that, then you're just banging your head against a wall. Yeah, I definitely have some thoughts about this, which I'm thinking maybe we can circle back to at the end. But this concept of safety and of feeling secure is... I just feel like nobody approaches it that way. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking about all these IEP meetings I attend where I almost feel like there's like a list of 10 strategies. Oh, the student is doing this. The student is refusing work or whatever. We can try like A, B or C. Yeah. And I feel like they all work with mediocre results, you know, because nobody is individualizing. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm really excited. Well, yeah, I picture the behavior support plans in the IEPs for the very large district I worked with were like a checklist. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. What behaviors are we seeing? What's leading to it? What are we going to do? And it was just like checking boxes. Like maybe there was a little space to write in. Yeah. But it is this one size fits all. And then everybody throws their hands up like, what's wrong with this kid when it doesn't work? Right. Well, we're not addressing the cause of the problem. And as you read this book, I think a lot of us are probably thinking back on some of the kids that we worked with that had the most disruptive behaviors Yeah. and kind of the environments maybe they came from. And when you look at it through this lens of they didn't feel safe and these were adaptive behaviors, it makes you go, oh my gosh, this is exactly what was going on. You know, this kid was constantly, well, we're going to talk about it more, but I know, I know. I'm like, I want to get into it, but go ahead. We can talk about it. We'll have a big discussion. Okay. What is behavior? This definition kind of like blew my mind. I guess I didn't think about what behavior is. Behavior is the observable response to our internal and external experiences. It's what comes out. (laughs) Yeah. So it's outward manifestations of a person's internal bodily processes, perceptions, emotions, thoughts, and intentions. 
She says we end up building treatment plans based on what we see. So those are those observable behaviors without adequately considering what lies beneath. And she gives an iceberg analogy with the behaviors as the tip of the iceberg, the part we readily see or know. And then there are so many factors that contribute to the behaviors that are hidden from view. And the hidden part of that iceberg is just so much more significant and gives us so much valuable information about why a child is behaving a certain way. I loved this concept. I know. Yeah, especially when she has the picture in the book. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. So when we look below the surface, we can also see which behaviors need to be left alone. And she gives the example of children who move their bodies in order to concentrate or feel comfortable. If you view something like a movement that a child with autism is doing as deficit-based and not strength-based, then you might target those behaviors for change. I'm thinking of things like hand flapping or, you know, spinning or something like that. Sure. There might be benefits or adaptive purposes for these movements. So to target them can have negative consequences for that child. And, you know, we're going to learn more about the specifics for autism in chapter seven, but I think we've all been probably in a room with a parent who's told their kid to stop flapping their hands. And you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) You have to think about what's that doing for that kid? That kid's not just doing that to annoy the parent. Right, for fun. Or be bad. Like they're doing that for a reason. It's coping. It helps them cope. Yeah. Yeah. So on page 17, you get to see that image of her developmental iceberg. And on the top, you see what's going on, the behavioral challenges. And when you focus on those, you miss the bigger picture. So we need to look at children through a new lens. And instead of asking, what's wrong with you? Ask, what happened to you? Or how can I help? Or What is this child experiencing right now in their mind and body? And this book will view behavioral challenges through this new lens that's informed by three areas, neuroscience and the polyvagal theory and neuroception, social emotional development, and appreciation for individual differences. So let's get into the polyvagal theory. Yes. This was developed by Dr. Stephen Porges, and it says that behavioral responses represent how a person's nervous system is constantly regulating the body's response to stress. So if there are persistent behavioral challenges, a child's nervous system is just automatically adjusting and responding to various forms of stress. They're adaptive responses because of our evolutionary drive to survive and thrive. We're grounded in survival instincts because we need to stay alive. And then psychology is built on how our caregivers meet those biological perceptions of the environment. There are three underlying neurophysiological states, social engagement, defense, which is fight or flight, or life threat, which is shutdown. And these three states are adaptive. They're driven by our survival instincts to move our bodies into a safe place when we don't feel safe. And your visceral state will influence your behavior. So when you change your mindset and you see behaviors as adaptations, it changes the way you support children. So you're shifting from a medical model where you're focusing on observable behaviors and symptoms and trying to treat those to a new approach where you focus on underlying processes that cause the behaviors. And then I just wrote, um, Tara, (laughs) (laughs) it's just, we're seeing this common thing where it's like, Instead of just trying to treat the behavior, the symptom, what we see, we need to go beneath. We need to figure out what's going on. And then neuroception was coined by Dr. Porges in 2004. And this is the brain and body's ongoing subconscious surveillance of safety and threat in the environment. You can have faulty neuroception when you detect threat 
when you're actually safe or detect safety when you're actually at risk. And this lies at the core of many psychiatric labels and disorders. Faulty neuroception can happen when a child overreacts or underreacts when evaluating the environment. If a child has a vulnerable nervous system or trauma history, they could mistakenly detect threat even when they're safe, which can trigger defensive reactions. And then this concept of neuroception should guide treatment of children across parenting, mental health, early intervention, education, and all childhood professions. Because our subconscious perception of safety really regulates our physiological state, and that influences the space between a stimulus and a response. So the way a kid reacts to something is going to be determined by this neuroception, whether they're perceiving threat or safety or danger, you know, it's going to have a huge impact on their behavior. So this is where I want to talk about this because Laura, I know that you have experience with kids who have pretty severe behaviors, but the populations at your school, there was a lot of trauma happening, right? There was a lot of poverty and there was a lot of violence in the community and things that would definitely trigger, I think, feelings of not being safe. Yeah. But, you know, when I worked at uh, one of my schools, that K through eight math and science magnet school, we had a lot of behaviors, not like severe, severe, but I remember being in a lot of IEPs, especially for the middle schoolers, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, kids who were not completing work, who were distracting others, who were just kind of like acting out. And again, we would have these meetings where they wouldn't necessarily qualify for speech because it always was kind of like put in the ADHD bucket. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't have, you know, if they weren't qualifying, then it wasn't really for me. But a lot of these strategies that were being thrown out, oh, just have them chew gum. Oh, maybe they can wear headphones in class. Oh, maybe he just needs a pencil grip or a stress ball or a break. You know, like these things where I was like, these kind of feel like Band-Aid solutions. But anyway, now that I'm hearing about this concept of neuroception, it's making me think, you know, this school was very academically rigorous. And because it was a math and science school, it attracted a lot of kids who already had either diagnosed or undiagnosed things going on that caused them to be very, very interested in math and science. So we had a really high rate of autism diagnoses and yeah. other things like that. But, you know, it makes me wonder if some of these behaviors were just coming from the pressure of being at this school where the expectation was that everybody would be functioning at this really high level and the teachers were not very understanding. We would have to fight all the time with these gen ed teachers to get them to literally just like follow the IEP accommodations yeah, because they were so upset that maybe, you know, Johnny had written in his IEP that he could chew gum, but gum was not allowed in their classroom. And this is the expectation. And just thinking about how that would start at a really young age for these kids. And so many of them started in kinder at the school and went all the way to eighth grade. And I just was kind of reading this thinking like, wow, I wonder how much the environment and then maybe consequently, you know, pressure from family or pressure at home to meet these super high expectations. I just wonder how much that affected these kids' feelings of safety and maybe influenced this behavior. And the behavior was their way of saying like, this is too much for me. You know, I can't operate at this high level. I'm struggling. 
And I don't ever feel like that was really addressed. Sometimes it was if it was glaringly obvious, you know, if it was an academic progress issue or something like that. But yeah, it's just been really making me see things with a different perspective. Yeah. And I think that she's going to, when we talk about the special populations, we're going to learn a lot more about the differences because yeah, kids could feel unsafe for such a wide variety you know there could be trauma there could be neurodiversity that's you know impacting their sensory experience of the world there could be I mean I think a lot about the kids Tara Sumter talks about working with sure in her practice you know who kind of it seems like that where maybe they're totally shutting down because of the pressure because of being told that they're not smart, feeling like they're always failing. And she talks a lot about safety, about creating, you know, that strong relationship and that being the most important thing so that that becomes that child's favorite part of the day. They feel safe with her and then they can build from there. Like that's number one. And so, yeah, I think that there could be so many reasons for a child to not feel safe. Yes. It's not just the traditional reasons you might think of. It's not one size fits all. Yeah. 100%. And I know that the the picture is not filled in yet because we're just learning about this now, but it's already some things are starting to click. So I can't wait. I mean, I know we're both thinking of students we've had over the years, like, oh my gosh, if I had known this at that time, yeah, things would have been different. But I feel like we say that yeah. like every episode. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know what? I forgot to mention in the introduction, she does put in a few disclaimers. And one of them is, listen, if you are a professional doing this valuable work and you're using a more traditional approach, don't beat yourself up, you know, because a lot of us are going to do that. We're going to read something in here and we're going to go, oh, I did that. I did that with a kid and I wish I could go back and do something different all the time. But, you know, we learn and we do better. (laughs) You know, it's just that's the way we got to approach it. I mean, we need to have a canned record like we need to have a recorded disclaimer at the beginning of every episode. Please don't like saddle yourself up with so much guilt. I know. I know. (laughs) Because of what we're talking about today, like we're all in the same boat. And if you're listening to this, literally, you're already doing so much more work, you know, than probably a lot of your peers. So think about our behavior class in grad school. It was just so focused on reinforcement. Yeah. Reinforcement and punishment and you know like yeah. negative reinforcement. We learned all the different, you know, we learned these behavioral principles right. and there was no discussion of yeah. why there was the behavior. It's really traditional. Where the behavior came from and addressing that. So right. You know, that's what we learned and that was 8 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> or no, no, no. That was 10 years ago because it was our first. And it, even at that time, it was old. <laughs> All right. We're almost done with this chapter. Let's see. So she mentioned several people who base their work on this principle of needing to feel safe in order to make use of your thinking brain, including our friends who wrote The Whole Brain Child yes. and the connect and redirect method. So when a kid is having this total lower brain, yes. you know, bottom up meltdown, they can't use logical thinking. You have to make a connection with them, make them feel secure, make them feel understood right? before you can then redirect them and calm them down. Right. 
The first step in helping children with challenges is to build a strong relationship with them. And then there's a section where she titles it, wait, what about diagnoses? And this is pretty much a section just like Tara's book, where she talks about how we should focus less on diagnoses and more on the underlying causality of what we're seeing. She talks about a shift in research from things like diagnostic symptoms checklists, like the DSM to studying the underlying causes of multiple behaviors and conditions. Mm. And this is where we go back and look at Stuart again, our little boy from the very beginning. He was adopted as a toddler and they were seeing that mild triggers would set him off. Everyday situations, just a stranger talking in a certain tone of voice. And he would run from large groups of people and had a pattern of defiance and lying. And everybody was just looking at the tip of the iceberg, what these behaviors that they could see and trying to treat those. But once they took this multidisciplinary approach and really tried to figure out what was going on, they figured out that from the time he was a toddler, he had a really difficult time maintaining a calm state in his body. He experienced everyday activities and sensations as stressful, which is faulty neuroception. So basically interpreting danger even when he was safe. And she says that implicit memories are powerful forces shaped by past experiences that you don't consciously remember, but that can impact your behavior. So even though maybe he was adopted as a toddler, he's still built into his body is holding those memories of before that when, you know, maybe he wasn't in a loving, secure, supportive environment. Finally, when they did take that multidisciplinary approach and address the fact that he had this false sense of danger, they were able to react appropriately to him to help him heal because parents previously had been told by specialists that his behaviors were reinforced by attention. So just think about how harmful that can be to a child who doesn't feel safe Yeah, and they're behaving as a reaction to not feeling safe. And then you, you're just withdrawing any attention And making them feel abandoned when they're not feeling safe. Right. I know I've definitely told people that he wants attention. You know, I've done that. But sometimes it seems like that. Like, not to defend us. But, you know, sometimes you see them have this, like, really stinker, like, smile on their face. And they do something so naughty and look to you and then run away, you know, like. Yeah. And I think, I guess in chapter two, we're going to get into that. And they got into it in the whole brain child. Oh, the bottom up, top down. There are examples where kids are misbehaving and it is manipulation. They are trying to get something. Yes, of course, kids do that. But we have to be able to distinguish between the two. Which one is it? So I love what she says here. Behaviors provide a clear benefit and they are a tribute to the brilliance of human survival. So children who seem to be misbehaving are actually adapting and surviving. And you have to try to look at them as an instructional manual for how to support each child's nervous system. Look at those behaviors. Look at what this kid is doing to adapt. Yeah. And like, how can I help them meet this need in a way that isn't so disruptive, right? In a way that is more effective. Yeah. We have to help children build the capacity for emotional regulation that underlies behavioral control. In summary of this chapter, we went through the three main limitations of traditional approaches. We covered the concept of neuroception, that children's mental health is influenced by how caregivers meet their neuroception. We talked about the difference between intentional misbehavior and a stress response and prioritizing relational safety in our interventions. Adrian, I am just really fired up about this. 
I hope if you're listening, you're as excited to learn about this new way to look at behavior as we are. I mean, it's really, really changing my mindset already, just reading chapter one. Me too. I mean, and I love how it really connects so much with everything we've learned up to this point, Whole Brain Child, Tara's book, Seeds of Learning. And um, I'm sure we're just going to learn so much more over the coming weeks. So everybody stay tuned. Learn with us. Yeah. So in our next episode, we'll cover chapter two, where we'll be discussing social emotional development and the difference between top down and bottom up behaviors. That will be next Tuesday. We'll see you then. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP book club.